Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. You know, people often say they don't like history. It's too full of dates that they can't remember. It's too full of people they don't care about. And those people in the past, you know, they do things that we would never do. We wouldn't stoop so low as some of those people. They exterminate the weak. They hold slaves. They encourage mad scientists. They stand by while nations devour one another. They make inventions that get them rich, and then it pollutes the environment. That's an approach to history that I call the standpoint of progressive superiority. (laughs) And it's no wonder we can't identify with people in the past when we feel ourselves superior to them, where we say, I would never have done that. Well, my ethics are superior. I'd never own slaves. I'd never sacrifice humans. I'd never support eugenics. I'd never discriminate against members of another religion. I'd never have dropped the bomb. Uh, You know, yeah, we're beyond that, huh? Right? We're supposed to be beyond it. And And what's funny is the we is always very vague on this. We are beyond that. It's not clear who really is in that we. But it's somehow the we constitutes all those who think like me, and I think I'm, well, morally superior to those people in the past. You know, I always like to point out that the greatest example of advanced Christian civilization was probably late 19th, early 20th century Germany. It was the home of the three killer bees of Western orchestral music, Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. You had the great writer Goethe. Germany, in fact, birthed the modern university system. Germany was a leader in various national science, natural sciences. They were regularly bringing in awards. It was considered the most advanced Western country. Well, of course, until the rise of what? Oh, yeah, Nazism, right? That came out of Germany. Germany put the full power of a modern industrialized economy behind the building of the Autobahn, behind restoring Germany's military, uh, behind some real advances in medicine. And, of course, they put that same full power of modern industrialized economy behind the ruthlessly efficient killing of six million Jews and millions of others, other undesirables. And... Certainly not here in America, though. What happened in Germany is is well, that's that that's not right. I mean, it's too weird, isn't it? That that couldn't happen here. Well, you know, the rise of the eugenics movement in America roughly parallels the rise of Nazism in Germany. I mean, America's eugenics program was in fact much admired by Hitler. Uh, he bestowed a, a, a major award at the University of Heidelberg on one of America's leading eugenicists. And we forget that the eugenics movement was led by some of the most respected scientists in America, as well as some of the most respected public figures, Winston Churchill, Woodrow Wilson, Alexander Graham Bell, John Maynard Keynes. Uh, Edwin Black has written what may be the best book ever published by the American, about the American eugenics movement and the horrific events that it spawned. It's, it's called War Against the Weak, Eugenics and America's Campaign to Create a Master Race. And he tells the story, uh, in one part of it, which I've never shared before on the program, but I thought I would do so today. Because we are 
in America right now. We are in a historical moment where the whole field of bioethics, uh, again, from abortion to genetic engineering, uh, you know, to cloning, is, is being reconsidered. So let me tell you a story, okay? Um, at 4 a.m., 4 in the morning on November 12, 1915, a woman named Anna Bollinger gave birth at the German-American hospital in Chicago. The baby was somewhat deformed, suffered from extreme intestinal and rectal abnormalities, and some other complications as well. The delivering physicians awakened Dr. Harry Hazelden, who was the hospital's chief of staff. Hazelden came in at once. He consulted with colleagues. There was great disagreement over whether the child could be saved. But Hazelton decided the baby was too afflicted and fundamentally not worth saving. It would be killed, and the method would be denial of treatment. Now, Catherine Walsh, probably a friend of uh, uh, Bollinger, uh, the, the woman who just gave birth, Catherine Walsh heard the news and sped to the hospital to help. She found the baby, who had been named Alan. Uh, the baby had been laid alone in a bare room. And Walsh pleaded with Dr. Hazelton not to kill the baby by withholding treatment. She's saying, it's not a monster, that child. It's a beautiful baby. I, I see no de deformity here. Walsh had patted the infant lightly. Alan's eyes were open. He waved his tiny fists at her. So she begged the doctor once more. She tried to appeal to his humanity. If the poor little darling has one chance in a thousand, won't you operate to save him? Hazelton laughed at Walsh and said, I'm afraid it might get well. Now, this guy was a skilled and experienced surgeon. He's not a crackpot. He was trained by the best doctors in Chicago. He was also an ardent eugenicist, and that is a, a form of ide an ideology that seeks to, um, you might say, purify the race of its uh, genetic abnormalities and deficiencies. Well, the baby died. Alan Bollinger, the little baby, died. An inquest was convened a few days later. Dr. Hazelton defiantly declared, quote, I should have been guilty of a graver crime if I had saved this child's life. My crime would have been keeping in existence one of nature's cruelest blunders, end quote. A juror shot back. What do you mean by that? Hazelton responded, exactly that. I do not think this child would have grown up. I, I do not think this child would have grown up to be a mental defective, I knew he'd be a mental defective. So it was you know, a lot, a lot of emotion there. Uh, the jury, or the, the the inquest, decided, "quote We believe that a prompt operation would have prolonged and perhaps saved the life of the child. We find no evidence from the physical defects that the child would have become mentally or morally defective." End of quote. Okay, so they came out on side of the child, right? But they also decided that Dr. Hazelton was within his professional rights to decline treatment. No law compelled him to operate on the child, and Dr. Hazelton was released unpunished. Um, the, the Illinois Attorney General uh, tried to indict him for murder. That was blocked by the local prosecutor. And um, the doctor considered his legal vindication a powerful victory for eugenics. 
He became an overnight celebrity, known for our newspaper articles, columns. He had a lot of speaking engagements. And in 1917, Hollywood came calling and made a film called The Black Stork. It was written by Jack Late, a reporter uh, on the Chicago American, produced in Hollywood, given massive national distribution and promotion. Hazelton played himself, and it was a fictionalized account of a eugenically mismatched couple whom he advises not to have children because they're likely to be defective. Now, eventually, the woman does give birth to a, quote, defective child whom she then allows to die. And the dead child levitates into the waiting arms of Jesus Christ. (laughs) It was unbridled cinematic propaganda for the eugenics movement. And the film played at movie theaters around the country for more than a decade. It was called The Eugenic Love Story. In 1917, a display advertisement for the black stork read, quote, Kill defectives, save the nation, and see the black stork, end quote. Yeah, so... There are other methods of eugenic euthanasia, including gassing, the unwanted, and lethal chambers. These were all part of everyday American parlance and the ethical debate that continued on in the first few decades of the 20th century. Nevada approved the first such uh, euthanasia chamber for criminal execution in 1921. And as America's eugenics movement gathered pace, it inspired lots of imitators. France, Belgium, Sweden, England, and elsewhere in Europe. You had cliques of eugenicists who did their best to introduce eugenic principles into national life. They could always point to recent precedents established here in the United States. One uh, such agitator who loved uh, what he saw going on in American eugenics was, in fact, Adolf Hitler. Uh, In Mein Kampf, for instance, he declared, quote, the demand that defective people be prevented from propagating equally defective offspring is a demand of clearest reason, and, if systematically executed, represents the most humane act of mankind. It will spare millions of unfortunates, undeserved sufferings, and consequently will lead to a rising improvement of health as a whole. End quote. Hitler uh, told his comrades how closely he followed American eugenic legislation. Quote, Now that we know the laws of heredity, he told a fellow Nazi, it is possible to a large extent to prevent unhealthy and severely handicapped beings from coming into the world. I have studied this with interest. The laws of several American states uh, prevent reproduction by people whose progeny would, in all probability, be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock. And, of course, we know what happens. On January 30th of 1933, Hitler seizes power. During the 12-year Reich, he never varied from his eugenic doctrines of identification, segregation, sterilization, euthanasia, eugenic courts, and eventually mass termination in lethal chambers. And during the Reich's first 10 years, eugenicists across America welcomed Hitler's plans as the logical fulfillment of their own decades of research and effort. Indeed, they were envious as Hitler rapidly began sterilizing hundreds of thousands and systematically eliminating non-Aryans from the German racial stock. This included Jews, of course. Ten years after Virginia passed its 1924 Sterilization Act, Joseph Desjarnet, superintendent of Virginia's Western State Hospital, 
complained in the Richard Richmond Times Dispatch that, quote, the Germans are beating us at our own game. This is why we should learn to love history. Because in history, we find people like ourselves who are subject to temptations that we may never be quite subjected to. But rather than an approach to history from the standpoint of moral superiority, I would argue that we look at history from the standpoint of Christian sympathy. Those men and women who populate the past are our kind. They are our brothers and sisters. There's no clear evidence of moral evolution over the last few thousand years. And what happened in the not-too-distant past could happen in the not-too-distant future. 